Hey, podcast listeners. Thanks for tuning into Brainwaves this week. Before we get into today's program, just a simple request. Please rate our show on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Really helps us out. Thanks. Doc, what do you think about medical marijuana? Do you think it could help my Parkinson's? Hey, Doc, I've been reading all about the benefits of medical marijuana. Do you think it's beneficial in stroke recovery? I've got seizures, and I read stories about patients who use marijuana can be cured. Do you think it's going to help my seizures if I try it? I mean, what's the harm in it? For all the healthcare professionals out there, I bet you guys get those questions a lot. And a lot of the time, when I get those questions, I honestly don't know what to tell these people. And by these people, I'm not just talking about my patients. I get a lot of questions from friends or family friends, from total strangers, and people who even email me about the Brainwaves podcast. And what do I tell them? Well, it usually goes something like this. I mean, smoking pot could probably help your mood. It could probably relieve the tension of having a chronic illness. But it's also putting smoke in your lungs, which sounds bad. It also takes a financial toll on your bank account. And it has all sorts of consequences on your judgment and your ability to operate machinery or to drive a car. You definitely, definitely shouldn't be driving a car with it. And you shouldn't use it while babysitting or doing brain surgery, anything like that. But saying things like that is pretty weak. It's incomplete. Our medical ecosystem is ever-changing, and alternative or homeopathic regimens should be studied, and they should be implemented if they're found to be effective. A lot of my own professional opinions about any potential benefits of marijuana are going to be puritanical. They're judgmental. And that's not science. That's just discrimination. So this week on the podcast, I challenge myself to review the science that supports the use of medical marijuana and to share what I came across with you. Specifically today, we'll be talking about the role of marijuana in patients with epilepsy. So don't go anywhere. William Richard Gowers was a 19th century British neurologist, perhaps best recognized for the Gower sign in patients with Duchenne's. Among his other contributions to neuroscience and neurology, his 1881 text, Epilepsy and Other Chronic Convulsive Diseases, described the case of a 40-year-old man with 25 years of seizures, which were called fits at the time, in which the patient reported a brief aura of vertigo, followed by loss of consciousness and then tonic-clonic spasms. Potassium bromide, which was the anticonvulsant at the time, failed to adequately control his symptoms. The bromide was discontinued, but Gowers knew that marijuana had been useful in the treatment of other conditions, like pain, rheumatism, and even convulsions, according to older medical texts written thousands of years ago. So Gowers started the patient on a formulation of cannabis. The fits ceased at once, Gowers wrote, and the patient reported, quote, a wonderful change. That's not surprising, I guess, but certainly being seizure-free was a plus. And the patient went months without a recurrent seizure. But that was just one case report, in the 1800s when medications were only elements on the periodic table. Phenobarbital didn't even come around until 1912, so marijuana found its way into use for a variety of conditions through the early 20th century, and it was available for purchase over-the-counter 
until about 1937 when Congress passed the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937. And in 1970, marijuana was declared a Schedule I substance, making it illegal. But that doesn't mean it couldn't be studied. After a few case reports documenting the success of, quote, medical marijuana, the first randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial of CBD, or cannabidiol, in epileptic patients was conducted in 1980. Fifteen patients were randomized. Of the eight treated patients, four remained almost free of convulsions, while three had, quote, partial improvement. In the placebo arm, only one patient out of seven noted any improvement. I read that paper, and it does sound pretty convincing, even for only 15 patients. So what's the problem? Well, from a pharmacologic perspective, medical marijuana is a mess. Smoking a bowl is not like taking a one-gram capsule of Keppra. There are more than a thousand known compounds in cannabis sativa, and only one known compound in Keppra, levotrastam. And of the thousand-plus compounds in cannabis, many are cannabinoids, like delta-9-THC, cannabidiol, and cannabidiverin, all at various concentrations with various potencies and various affinities for who knows how many receptors in the central nervous system. Known signaling pathways include GABAergic, glutamatergic, and serotonergic neurons, and interesting, though, that the natural cannabidiol doesn't bind to the endogenous cannabinoid receptor, CB1, in humans. And then who knows how these substances work once their chemical conformation is changed by heated vaporization or burning, or once they pass through the extremely acidic GI tract, not to mention the way that they augment your own metabolic machinery. For instance, cannabidiol is a major inhibitor of CYP isoenzymes in the liver, which can raise a patient's serum concentrations of medications like clobazam, topiramate, or eslacarbazepine, causing sedation and other toxicities. A lot of questions remain unanswered when it comes to the mechanism and the biologic plausibility of CBD as a mediator of seizure prevention. But let's take a step backwards and review the mechanism for how medical marijuana should work. Preliminary studies have shown that the endogenous cannabinoid system is dysregulated in epileptic patients. One study of patients with temporal lobe epilepsy showed that patients had lower levels of anandamide, an endocannabinoid, in their CSF. Another study showed lower levels of cannabinoid receptors in certain neurons of the hippocampus among patients who had epilepsy when compared to patients without epilepsy. In cell culture and mouse models, cannabinoid antagonists seem to trigger seizures, whereas agonists tend to reduce abnormal cellular discharges. And knockout mice who lack CB1 receptors have severe intractable seizures, whereas mice who overexpress CB1 receptors have fewer seizures. In addition, Agonists like cannabidiol seem to have pleiotropic mechanisms, like reducing glutamate release by stimulating TRP receptors, and CBD activates certain serotonin receptors, and it inhibits the reuptake of adenosine. Cannabidiverin, or CBDV, which is the propyl analog to cannabidiol, seems to have similar effects. So when you think about this basic science, it can be a pretty compelling story. But none of these studies involved putting mice into a hotbox and observing them for seizures. These studies involved very precise measurements and doses of extremely specific cannabinoids. So what happens when we try this in humans? I already mentioned that there are over a thousand different compounds in marijuana and over a hundred different cannabinoids. The most extensively studied would be the ones we mentioned already, THC, CBD, and CBDV. 
THC is the fun drug, and CBD may be the more potentially therapeutic non-hallucinogenic cannabinoid compound that we move forward with in future human research. I'll get to that in a minute. And over the past several years, while these molecules are structurally similar, they've been doled out in variable potencies and concentrations. Dispensaries for medical and recreational marijuana are poorly regulated, and despite this really incredible concern, there's next to no quality control. And think about this. Even when you're ingesting an unknown concentration of CBD, it does have very poor overall bioavailability, where 10% of the drug actually makes it into the bloodstream and nervous system. But none of this matters to patients or to parents of extremely sick children. You might remember the case on CNN several years back of a child with genetically confirmed Dravet syndrome, also known as severe myoclonic epilepsy of infancy. In that CNN broadcast, featuring Sanjay Gupta, one orally ingestible strain of cannabis, called Charlotte's Web, was found to be exceedingly effective in relieving the seizures of that child. And he stumbled onto this video of a child using marijuana. So how's everything go? Jamie had four days without a seizure. I'm like, wow, this having success, and specifically Gervais, this is interesting, it's natural. And while he couldn't ever imagine taking marijuana himself, he was now in the stunning position of recommending it for Charlotte. I was like, we need to do this. But this is only a case report, kind of like the patient from Gower's report in the mid-19th century. And we're all scientists, right? So we're not just going to jump to conclusions based on this alone. What you really want to know is, do cannabinoids effectively treat epilepsy? So here are the facts. 1. A case control study based in New York showed that the odds of new-onset seizure disorders were 74% lower in men who had used cannabis in the last 90 days. Hardly randomized controlled clinical trial data, but intriguing. 2. A 2013 survey of caregivers for 19 children with severe epilepsy reported that two of those kids had become seizure-free on CBD-enriched products, and eight had an 80% reduction in seizures. So, survey data, but still interesting. Three, four randomized clinical trials involving 48 patients have investigated the efficacy of CBD versus placebo in treating seizures. Okay, so finally good clinical data. And in 2014, the Cochrane Collaboration reviewed these trials. There was no clear benefit of CBD, but at least it was safe. The Cochrane investigators did recognize that there was very poor information on the randomization procedures very limited data on the baseline characteristics of the treated patients and the controls, and the trials covered very short durations of therapy. Oh yeah, and there was no blinding. These findings were confirmed in a separate systematic review that was published in the Green Journal that same year. 4. A 2016 open-label trial of CBD in children with drug-resistant epilepsy showed a 36% reduction in seizures in patients who took the CBD, Unfortunately, 1 in 8 patients had a serious adverse event related to the study drug, but still a pretty strong reduction in seizure risk. 5. A phase 3 randomized trial of children with Dravet's found similar results, 39% seizure reduction with CBD at 20 mg per kilogram per day, versus 13% in the placebo arm, a three-fold reduction in seizure risk. 6. Two unrelated Phase three randomized trials of children with Lennox-Gastaut also confirmed benefit of CBD using several doses. In the CBD arm, there was about a 40% reduction in seizures versus 20% with placebo. So a two-fold change. 
So as you can see, there is a trend with increasing evidence that supports the use of CBD for drug-resistant primary generalized epilepsy syndromes, especially for Dravet's and LGS, where the children are extremely debilitated by their neurologic disease and the rate of SUDEP is horrifying. Much of the positive randomized clinical trial evidence has only been published in the last year, so I can't imagine it's going to be long before we start to see FDA approval for some of these compounds for various, very selective indications. Indications like Dravet's. It's a very exciting time to be part of this movement, and even though I don't see these patients in my own practice, I can't help but feel optimistic about these more progressive therapies. As this show comes to an end, I should mention that I'm in no way recommending or encouraging the use of marijuana, cannabidiol, or its related products for the treatment of any medical condition, seizure or otherwise. This podcast is intended for medical education and entertainment purposes only, so just enjoy it, will you? We also didn't cover any of the adverse side effects of cannabis, or the various compounds within marijuana, the risk of dependence, the difference in medical grade versus recreational grade marijuana the placebo response, which is huge in certain neurologic conditions, and not to mention some of the evidence that certain cannabinoids, including THC, can even induce seizures. So there's a lot that we just didn't have time to cover, and I suggest you read up on this on your own. The senior producer of the Brainwaves podcast will be me, Jim Siegler. Music this week was courtesy of Kevin McLeod and Montplaisir. Voiceover, courtesy of Erica Mejia. For more information about what was covered today and get the link to the board review course, please check out this week's blog entry at brainwaves.me. I'm Jim Siegler from Philadelphia, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.